Well, happy Halloween, everyone. It's uh, October 31st when this episode's coming out, so hopefully everybody is uh, getting ready for a lot of people ringing on the doorbell. Hopefully you're not handing out fentanyl. Um, and yeah, it's a little messed up, but Hey, you know, warnings must be issued. Uh, happy Halloween, Alan. Uh, happy Halloween to you too, Dustin. Hey, is that the, um, is that the same shirt you wore last week? I had a feeling that you'd bring that up. Yeah, it is. Look, Astros are in the world series. So this is like Halloween edition, world series edition. Yes. I was wearing this Jersey last time last episode but look I, I after game one um you know the the debacle that took place look the red sox are not in the playoffs what why did you bring up the red sox you tell me and the red so- <laughs> the red sox are not in the playoffs i know we've got a guy who's from boston who's going to be a, a guest today um and you guys apparently are going to really hit it off well, you know, it you know, we I call this you know, like international relations, domestic relations. So yeah, we got a he's a Red Sox fan, so you know, you got to you got to play the part. Even you know, hell, I am a Red Sox fan. So there you go. I just happen to have one of these. Well, honestly, Red Sox are my number 2 team. Um when the Astros were so bad for so long, um I became just just an Astros fan, and I love the Ash, the the Red Sox Yankees rivalry. Still love it. Um, just great stuff. Yeah. So, are you doing anything for uh, Halloween tonight, or this weekend? I should say. No. Uh, well, hopefully, I will get a treat in the form of an Astros win because Astros are playing Game Three against the Phillies. What are you doing? Wait, Game Three or Game Two? Game Three. Okay. Game two has already been played. Remember, we are living in the future. This is yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'm I'm going as uh, uh, David DePape. So I don't know what that is. David DePape. I'm gonna be wearing. I'm just gonna go out. I'm gonna wear uh, underwear and carry around a hammer. Oh, <laughs> that's his name. I didn't know his name. Oh, we'll uh, we'll be hearing more about him. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't think the story about him is what the uh, journalists were first telling us that he's a intruder. Yeah. I don't. I yeah. don't think that's going to be coming out in the near future. If we're going to be talking about the future. No, there's a chance that he was an intruder. Definitely going through the back door. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I, you know. I'm gonna leave it there. Leave it. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it. Oh man. And and just so many people were like this is what extreme right re- right wing politics, you know, results in and you're like uh well, it's 2 a.m. uh you got the call for a wellness check or something and the guy was in his underwear with a hammer and the police were apparently already there and then the moment he starts swinging that hammer they're like, "Okay, let's go ahead and <laughs> bring this to a close oh this is going to be an interesting story uh well anyways let's move on speaking of interesting stories we've got a great guest on the show a wealth of knowledge daniel j mahoney he's the author of the new book the statesman as thinker uh wouldn't that be great uh, if we had politicians who became statesmen and actually thought uh coherently and anyways uh maybe it's just too much to wish for um 
What do you think? I, think I mean, I, like the state yeah, of politics you know, I, is a joke. I, I want to say that we 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 have some people in politics today who are very good speakers, who can read off a teleprompter very well, but their politics are not uh, not exactly what I would say are great for the country, Western civilization, and um, you know. Looking at his book, I think that was one of his uh, qualifications: is, is that they are doing something good for, you know, for a cause. So, but you know, I mean, but if your cause is what, let's say, certain people, I don't want to mention any names, but let's just say, if your cause is uh, is something that might be detrimental to the country, then that's all going to be questionable. Yeah, it's all about your fellow man. What's best for your fellow man, and not what's best for your particular political party. Um, and that's unfortunately where we are. That's, that's, it's all about reelection. Um, sometimes you just gotta let it go and be like, do the right thing. Even that, even if that means don't get reelected, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't yet, please do us a huge favor, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Also, if you're listening strictly on the audio version, give us a subscription. Oh, actually, why would you give us a subscription? We're the ones offering the subscription. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening on Apple, uh, leave a rating and a review, preferably five stars. It'd be greatly appreciated. Um, you can visit our website, thesonsofhistory.com. You can check out uh, the things that we're doing and check out the gear that we're offering. You can go uh, buy that. Um, I haven't voted yet, so I got to go vote uh, this week. You're going to go vote this week, or have you already voted? I already voted, and um, the 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 machine ate up my ballot. Yep, we are we Harris County, Texas. We're already having problems with the voting machines. Um, it it uh, it's one of those machines where it feeds on on paper, and it ate up my second page. So they had to they had to redo everything. I got the serial number and all the information off the machine, but. Yeah, I was kind of pissed off. It's like, you know, here I am voting early thinking, you know, got it out of the way, confident with my vote, only to think, was my vote really counted? So welcome to Harris County where Lena Hidalgo and her, you know, friends are running things and hope hopefully she'll be out here pretty soon. Yeah, hopefully so. You got when you have Mattress Mac and Dave Ward combining. I've never seen them involved in politics, but when they're coming on saying get rid of uh, you know our Harris, uh, the, our county commissioner, you know she's doing a bad job. Yeah, well, isn't she the? I thought she was the Harris County. Um, I thought she's the DA. No, no, that's uh, Kim Og. Kim Og, you know, Kim Og and uh, Lena are both in the same party, and uh, Kim Og wants to indict her so she thinks uh lena is doing a horrible job so yeah she is i've got inside scoop on how terrible of a job she's actually doing well yeah she's probably they're saying that she's going to be indicted after the election jeez yeah so look as they do in harris county uh alan so should you vert vote early and vote often i plan on doing that (laughs) Make it happen. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's going to be sort of a new setup. Um, We're actually going to do our This Week in History after the interview with our guest. 
um, along with our book and movie recommendation. So stay tuned for that. Uh, after our discussion with Daniel J. Mahoney, we're going to bring him on. Are you ready to have that conversation, my good friend? Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to this because this this is, should be an interesting conversation. Um, I've got a couple of uh, uh, people that I'm going to throw at him uh, in regards to whether he thinks that they are statesmen or not. Yeah, like Trump and Hillary Clinton. I got you. I know where you're coming from. I got it. Uh, uh, all right. Oh, God. I'm not going to say, you know. Did you hear her? Did you see her lately where she was no. saying that the election in 24 is already decided in terms of uh, the cheating? No, I didn't, but it's not a surprise. You didn't see you didn't see her her little her little commentary that uh was it I don't know if she said vast right-wing conspiracy or vast right-wingers are going to be already setting the stage to uh you know to have uh, to cheat on the, uh, in the 24 election that we need to pay more attention to that one. And you know uh you know she's been denying the 2016 election since 2016 but i don't hear her being called a denier i don't think twitter's i don't think twitter deactivated her account so um but i think all that's going to change uh i i was really happy to see what what happened with twitter and uh you know that that's that's going to be quite refreshing i must add <laughs> yeah it is uh, a lot of people are getting reinstated you get you get to say you know what what you want um I mean, I, I want to, you know, look, listen, if you're a left winger, if you're left leaning, you, sh you should not have your account uh, uh, shut down. I, I think everybody, everybody should have a right to speak. And, you know, even the founding fathers were saying that the freedom of speech means that even speech that you cannot stand must be protected by, by the government. Yeah. And enough with the hypocrisy or the, or the short term memory with this whole election stuff, like, uh, you know, you can't question the election. Like we've been questioning elections pretty much since the founding of our Republic. So it, it's just so absolutely absurd that all of a sudden, like people are getting kicked off of social media because they're questioning the legitimacy of the 2020 election. It's just like nobody was getting kicked off for 2016. Uh, nobody was getting kicked off for 1876 either. Go Go think about that. Well, you know, the, I remember in 1980 that they were questioning Reagan's election because uh, he actually had the he had the questions that uh, that or or the comments that Jimmy Carter was going to say. I, I I don't remember what exactly. There was a bit of a controversy, but uh, Tip O'Neill kind of uh, he was the Speaker of the House, a Democrat. He said, "Look, Jimmy Carter was a loser, so let's just move on." Yeah, that and in politics, yeah, it's definitely true. Um, wild, wild stuff. But hey, let let freedom ring, right? Let freedom ring. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring on our guest. His name is Daniel J. Mahoney. He is the professor emeritus at Assumption University. He's senior fellow at the Real Clear Foundation, and he's a senior writer at Law and Liberty. He's a specialist in French political philosophy, anti-totalitarian thought. Uh, specializes in Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, works and the intersection of religion and politics. He's the author and editor of 12 books. How many have you written, Alan? How many have I written? 
I wrote I wrote one book, but it was never published. It was about dinosaurs. Oh yeah, we talked about that. That's right. It's a classic. Um, so this guy has worked on twelve books, including Alexander Solzhenitsyn, The Ascent from Ideology, The Conservative Foundations of the Liberal Order, The Other Solzhenitsyn, Telling the Truth About a Misunderstood Writer and Thinker, The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity, and his latest book that we're going to be talking about, The Statesman as Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation. Ladies and gentlemen, um, you're going to learn a lot uh, during this conversation. I can already guarantee you that. So we've got Daniel. He doesn't mind us calling him Dan. We're already good friends. Uh, so we've got Dan on the line. Dan, how are you doing, man? Doing very well. It is great to have you on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do it. I know you're out in D.C., correct? What are you doing out I there? Indeed. I've had on? a busy few days. I gave a, I did an interview in New York City with the historian Richard Brookheiser about my statesmanship book. And then I gave the keynote at the Pumpkin Papers dinner in honor of Whitaker Chambers. Uh, it's an annual thing. Uh, at the Metropolitan Club in DC. And then I went to an event today. So it's been a little bit of a, a busy three days, but I'm very happy to be with you guys. Well, I, my first question is, I know your last name is Mahoney. Are you, are you married to Breathless Mahoney? I am not. I, I, I certainly remember Breathless Mahoney from the cartoon and the movies, uh, but no, I am not related as far as I know. <laughs> If you could be related to a fictional character, uh, perhaps, but I don't know. Oh, she's a beaut. Well, hey, uh, we want to talk about the book, uh, The Statesman as Thinker. And my first question is based on the idea behind the book. It's sort of modern era focused as far as the individuals that you chose. Um, going back to Edmund Burke, and then you've got Tocqueville, Lincoln, Churchill, De Gaulle, and Vaclav Havel. So why did you choose these particular people to be your subjects? Well, you know, the title of the book is The Statesman is Thinker, Portraits of Greatness, Courage, and Moderation. So I was examining figures who are both outstanding political leaders. That doesn't mean they're saints, doesn't mean they're perfect, but who exhibited the qualities of character and soul that separate the statesman from the ordinary political leader and certainly from the rapacious tyrant. So already you're limiting yourself to people who both act in a serious and energetic and noble way, but who also thought seriously about politics, history, and human nature. And all of the figures that you mentioned fit that category. And then the subtitle of the book really suggests um, figures who combine a certain greatness of spirit, a certain boldness of action, a certain prudence of judgment with moderation or self-restraint. And by moderation, I mean avoiding the extremes of, of despotism and ideology, but also showing self-restraint when needed, not raw ambition for its own sake, but what I call following another scholar, honorable ambition. But I would just one caveat, you're absolutely right that the figures in the book, Edmund Burke died in 1797, 
Havel died in 2011. That's sort of the, the chronological period. But I do make more than passing reference to some older figures, well, Washington, but also to Cicero, who I think uh, the great Roman Republican statesman, who was also a political philosopher, and whose writings, I think, beautifully articulated what noble statesmanship was, you know. He sort of described the Churchillian spirit uh, before uh, it was embodied in a figure or embodied in figures like Lincoln and Churchill. But he was also an acting statesman. He was a great thinker, but an acting statesman who tried to save the Roman Republic at a time when it was collapsing. And it was really under the specter or threat of a new kind of charismatic despotism with the, this military genius, uh, Caesar. So I, uh, I, I refer to all sorts of ancient authors. I mentioned Pericles. I draw on Aristotle's ideas about statesmanship, just referred to Cicero. But I really did find that if you're looking for figures who combine thought and action, ambition with a certain respect for human liberty, the best examples are really relatively recent ones. And I'm going to add one further caveat. You don't see many states or any statesmen on the scene today. So that, that um, you know, Churchill died in 65, de Gaulle died in 1970. There were certainly some other figures, I think, even at the end of the Cold War, Thatcher, uh, and others who are Reagan, you, not, you wouldn't say Reagan is a great thinker, but he certainly was a man of uh, serious character. And um, he had, I think, a deep commitment to human liberty. And I think he was really decisive for the denouement, the final period of the Cold War. But you look to that now and we really see a real absence of serious political leadership and serious political thought. So it's something we may talk about. What's the future of statesmanship? You don't want to ever extrapolate indefinitely into the future from present trends because who in 1850 could have predicted Lincoln coming along, you know, at the time of the Civil War. But, but on the other hand, um, um, things don't look so good, even, even though not too long ago, the Western world was blessed with some you know, people worthy of that name statesman. So it's a long answer, but it gives you a sense of where I'm coming from. Now, I was going to ask you, um, I know one of the people that you uh, mentioned was, uh, was Charles de Gaulle. Um, I know really of only one major speech that he did and nobody heard it or nobody listened to it. And that was when he uh, arrived in London in 1940 after the Battle of France. Um, but my question is going to be more geared towards What's more important, oration or written? Because, you know, Thomas Jefferson, who I, who I considered a statesman, uh, wasn't much of a speaker, whereas John Adams was. Jefferson was better as a writer. Uh, Adams, I think, did better, you know, speaking passionately. So wh where, do you, where do you draw the line on that? Well, you know, it's, you know, that's absolutely right about Jefferson and Adams. But I would say Adams and Jefferson live before the age of mass communications. And that means, uh, yes, Adams was a better speaker. Uh, on the other hand, he did not have an opportunity to speak on television or radio or that kind of thing. So that difference, I think, was somewhat minimized. Jefferson was a superb writer. I mean, and by the way, they both had a hand in the writing of the Declaration of Independence 
their correspondence is fascinating to read. They died on the same day, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1826. But um, I think writing is more fundamental in the end because yes, there were thousands of people who heard Lincoln give the 262, 232-word Gettysburg Address in November 1863. He famously says, it's an old rhetorical sleight of hand, the world will little remember what we said here. Well, they remember because the power of the writing. And uh, I think um, Churchill was certainly a fine orator. I have, I like to listen to his speeches, you know, to the recordings of his speeches. He had a certain cadence that's uh, memorably Churchillian, but we read his speeches, you know, the speeches, the uh, by the way, de Gaulle's speech, you, you recall, it was called L'Appel, the call, the French sometimes calls the call to honor, the call to resistance. It was given on the BBC on June 18th, 1940. Everyone a few years later, certainly after the resistance and liberation claimed they heard it, hardly anyone heard it. Although it, it was widely read uh, from 1940 on and is uh, the 50th anniversary of, 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 of the L'Appel, the call, uh, June 18, 1990, the French government built a giant radio near the Eiffel Tower and Trocador Plaza and as a replica. And uh, yeah, but it's interesting, those two great speeches were given that day. Uh, Churchill delivered his finest hour speech of June 18, 1940. Uh, the peroration begins, the battle of France is over, the battle of Britain is about to begin. And that's a speech where Churchill says, uh, um, if we win this war, the whole world will move forward to broad sunlit uplands. But if we lose, we will confront a new and, uh, and more sinister, uh, a new tyranny made more dark and sinister by the lights of perverted science. And then of course he says, if we do our duty, um, men will look back and say, this was their finest hour. Uh, that peroration is very memorable and famous. And the same day, with Churchill's per per permission, this uh, Brigadier General, who had come to London after the legal government of France had begun to initiate the process of an armistice with Nazi Germany, de Gaulle had come to found the movement that became La France Libre, Free France. And he gave this famous address. It's subsequently famous, even if nobody heard it. But again, um, that speech is read and studied by French school children. It's very famous. Most French have it memorized. You know, my mother memorized the Gettysburg Address. She could recite it. She was not a terribly politically minded woman, but there was once a time when you know American kids learned that kind of thing. So no, I, I, I'm a believer in the primacy of the written word because even in the age of mass communications, I don't really think anyone remember we can see we can see the tape of link of, of of reagan in berlin in 1987 mr gorbachev tear down that wall that's a memorable clip but again it's the written text the power of the words that ultimately gives those kinds of speeches if not immortality gives them a heft to you know last into the future Okay, yeah, because you know, I'm, I am a, I am a De Gaulle fan, and I know that he did inspire a lot of people to fight. So, at least uh, you know he didn't do what Patan did. Um, but yeah, the unfortunate thing is, is that I, I'm familiar with that one speech, 
But again, he, he inspired a nation to continue the fight, or at least those. So, those... Uh, I'll put it this way. Uh, you know, the, the France, there was limited resistance after the armistice, June 22nd, 1940. But the French Communist Party, which was very large, collaborated with the Nazis because of the Hitler-Stalin pact. But then after the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, the communists became very active in the resistance and they came to control it. And if it hadn't been for de Gaulle, who was a conservative and Christian general, a French patriot, leading the movement of resistance, there is no doubt that the Communist Party would have seized control in France. So de Gaulle saved the honor and self-respect of the nation. And that was very, very important to do because it was a fiction in a way, but you know, when we occupied Germany, the French got an occupation zone in West Germany. They got an occupation zone in Berlin. They were part of the victory. And that was in a way a conceit, but de Gaulle kept resistance alive. Uh, uh, you know, after the war, everyone exaggerated how many people fought for the resistance or supported de Gaulle and all of that. It was actually a much smaller number than people are willing to admit, but we should not underestimate the power of that example. And that power is tied, to come back to your first question, to the power of the word. You know, I'd say just as we most associate Lincoln with the, uh, the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural, we most associate Churchill with those great speeches, blood, toil, tears, and sweat, you know, and the finest hour from the summer 1940. The French most associate uh, de Gaulle with um, that single speech in June 18, 1940, which set in motion everything else to follow. And then de Gaulle came back to power in 1958. France was very poorly governed. It was like Italy after World War II. The typical government lasted eight months or so. Governments would come and fall, lose coalitions in parliament. And he gave France a new constitution, not with a dictatorial leader, but with a strong executive, more like the United States. And so France has lots of problems, but it at least has pretty effective political institutions. So with those two moments, 1940, 1958, de Gaulle played a very crucial role. And as I point out in my book, he also wrote really important books. He, um, you know, Churchill won the Nobel Prize for literature, for his speeches and his memoirs of the Second World War. De Gaulle was a very good writer too, not only his war memoirs, memoirs but he wrote books on political leadership, military leadership, um, he was a critic of the Maginot Line, you know, just waiting behind a wall for the fortifications for the Germans to attack. He wanted strong tanks and planes that could take the offense to the Germans. So he was a military intellectual. He was a, he was a formidable rhetorician. Um, he was uh, a difficult man in many ways, but um, I think all great men are a little difficult. You know? Well, I want to throw this in because uh, two of the people that you mentioned uh, were uh, inspirations uh, to my family who were living in, uh, in the Levant uh, during World War II in, in Lebanon, what is now uh, Lebanon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, my, my grandfather and my mom, my mom uh, remembers de Gaulle uh, at an early age. She was born in 1940, but uh, but my grandfather would tell me stories about how Churchill and de Gaulle inspired the uh, Lebanese to side with the Free French versus the Vichy French, who were in control until uh, both the British and the Free French came in and took it away. 
Yeah, Lebanon got its formal independence in 1946, but uh, interestingly, de Gaulle, as a young officer, spent a certain amount of time in Lebanon, in Beirut, and he knew the country well. And yes, early on in the war, Lebanon became an outpost for the Free French, as opposed to the collaborationist, Petainist, or Vichyite regime. And yeah, and we forget, you know, Lebanon, Lebanon is a tra train wreck today, but you know, when it, it was a country with a very large Christian presence and a very strong kind of cultural, spiritual, intellectual identification with France. And uh, yeah, and de Gaulle uh, knew Lebanon well. And as I said, was stationed there for more than a few years in the 1920s. So it's an interesting connection. Um, and the French, uh, the French felt a, uh, certainly a special connection with the Maronites and the Christian population in Lebanon, which goes back, you know, a thousand years or more, maybe even to the apostolic period. So it's an interesting story. Yeah, and uh, de, Gaulle, um, uh, de Gaulle, you know, in the 1960s, de Gaulle quarreled with the United States a lot, not because de Gaulle was anti-American, although some said he was, because he wanted a stronger role for uh, France and Britain in NATO. He didn't want America just to command and dictate. And um, Nixon and Kissinger appreciated that because they thought, you know, the French, they have a nuclear deterrent. They want to have a serious foreign policy. You never had a pacifist movement in France, uh, a nuclear disarmament movement. And so yeah, the French were a little prickly, but they were at least, they weren't so dependent on the United States. And, um, uh, and you know, there were three Berlin crises, 58, 61, 62. And in each of those crises, uh, de Gaulle remained a stalwart. You know, he, did, he, he actually wanted to tear the Berlin Wall down and he sided very strongly with the United States during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So despite his prickliness and the fights over NATO during the big crises, he was firmly allied to the United States. And that's, that's an interesting story worth uh, recalling. So these um, individuals that you've uh, chosen, they have some similarities. And one of them is they are, they are statesmen either during revolution or war. Um, you had Burke, uh, he really stood up, interestingly enough, for the Americans during the American Revolution. Um, Tocqueville, I mean, he, he grew up during the French Revolution um, or after the French Revolution had taken place. So he grew up in that, in that atmosphere and then the Napoleonic Wars. And then he comes over here. Uh, Lincoln, obviously, the Civil War and Churchill, World War one and two and to go. So they're all and even uh, Havel during the he, he was involved in the Czech revolution, the Velvet Revolution. So all of these guys are involved in some way during either revolutionary periods or war itself. What is it about these types of crises that either these statesmen become statesmen because of the crises or are they already statesmen and the crisis just elevates them. What is it about those now, moments? That you raise a really important issue. Is statesmanship of this rank and caliber really possible outside of a time of crisis? 
Um, I don't think statesmanship of the noblest kind, the most ample kind, just arises during crisis, but, but it's much more likely to. And you're right about the connection between the statesman I highlight and an atmosphere or climate of war and revolution. Burke was a, a very prominent British Whig politician, a famous orator, also like Cicero, a political philosopher who had written important books on philosophy and politics, a marvelous stylist. And yes, he did support the American Revolution, less as revolution that he thought he worked very hard for conciliation between the United States and Britain. In fact, in eighth grade classes in America between 1899 and 1930, his speech on conciliation with America was used as the basis of rhetoric textbooks. Can you imagine eighth graders reading Edmund Burke today? Unthinkable. Uh, uh, but he saw the Americans as, in a way, completing and perfecting English liberty. And he thought they'd been on their own for a long time, even if you know, the kings were the official sovereigns of the United States. And the, the wise course was let America go its separate way. And he, he was a fierce critic of some of the abuses of the British Indian, East India Company in India against the native population. He was born in Ireland, the son of a Catholic mother. He was very critical of the disabilities against Catholics. He was afraid they would radicalize the Catholic population, which it did eventually with things like the IRA. And uh, he fought for the rights of Catholics. A lot of people were surprised by the ferocity of his resistance to the French Revolution. But he saw the French Revolution as something new under the sun. He saw it as an ideological revolution based on abstractions, based on uh, an extremist ideology that aimed to fundamentally remake human nature in a utopian and impossible way. He predicted, you know, Reflections on the Revolution and France was published in 1790, and yet he predicted both the terror which followed and something like the a Napoleonic dictatorship. So he was very prescient or prophetic. Um, but I don't see there's any contradiction between Burke, the reformer, and the defender of liberty and human dignity and his opposition to what we would now call totalitarian uh, ideology. Um, and um, uh, Burke is a masterly rhetorician. His style is different than Lincoln's, but he is Churchill, Lincoln, de Gaulle, even Tocqueville, who was probably best known as a writer and thinker than a statesman, but he was French foreign minister after the revolution of 1848. He was a moderate or even a conservative defending liberty, but he didn't want to replace the old regime with either Napoleonic authoritarianism or socialist dictatorship and uh, his struggles. He, uh, he sometimes said, I'm a party of one because French public opinion was so polarized between reaction and revolution. But uh, Tocqueville's interesting because while he's briefly foreign minister, he, his political career was a failure in that uh, he didn't really succeed in what he wanted to. But in writing about the French ancien regime, the French revolution, the subsequent failed efforts to establish ordered liberty, writing, as, as you said, Dustin, his famous trip to the United States, 1831, 80, 80, 1832, 
his subsequent reflections on democracy in America, he left a really precious testament to what does it mean to have, you know, he saw great promise, but also terrible dangers in democracy. And uh, the dangers were new forms of despotism, radical egalitarianism, threats to human dignity and independence of mind. But he also saw lots of things in America that revealed the possibilities of a lawful and balanced liberty that guaranteed the rights of ordinary people. Um, and Churchill um, was um, a member of parliament from 1900 to 1965. So he was a politician, uh, a great orator, and also a historian and writer. He, he wrote uh, 60 or 70 books, but he was in political exile from 29 to 39 mainly because he disagreed with his own party, the conservative party about the German question and about appeasement of Nazi Germany after 33 and also about India. He worried that England would give its independence to India too quickly, the country would break in half and the Hindus and Muslims would kill each other. He wasn't wholly wrong about that. Uh, but Churchill was an example of an acting politician who rises to the forefront when it's recognized that he's the indispensable man in the fall of 39. Lincoln, on the other hand, was a congressman for one term. But once the Missouri Compromise was repealed, slavery started spreading to new states and territories. Lincoln came on the political scene, attacked Dred Scott, ran for Senate, nominated for president. So he's an interesting example of a very talented lawyer kind of a natural aristocrat who rises out of the blue. And Havel was a great dramatist and writer. Uh, he spent many years in communist prisons in Czechoslovakia. He was in prison in the early 1899 on January 1st, 1990. He speaks to the Czechoslovakian people as their, the first president of a non-communist Czechoslovakia and then uh, a non-communist Czech Republic. So there are different cases, you know, but um, sometimes a great statesman is somebody who's a long-term politician who finally gets an opportunity in a time of crisis. And then sometimes, I mean, who would the Czechs turn to, you know, after 50 years of totalitarianism? They turned to an independent intellectual who had led resistance in the underground, you know? So each situation is different, but there is something about times of crisis that makes a true statesman indispensable. You know, de Gaulle, uh, Churchill lost the election in July, 1945. Imagine this, the man saved Britain, saved Western civilization. And then as he told his wife, I was given the Royal Order of the Boot. And in his memoirs, de Gaulle talks about the ingratitude of democratic peoples. He saves the country, democracy, the Western civilization, and they throw them out. So uh, uh, yeah, there's no guarantee. Who knows what would have happened to Lincoln if he hadn't been assassinated at Ford's Theater on April 14, 1865. He was still relatively youngish. We don't know what his political fate would have been. Uh, so uh, no, it's a great question and there's no simple answer, but I couldn't agree more that there seems to be over the last two centuries, a direct connection between the severity of the political scene and the necessity for great men to come to the forefront. So you 
you bring up politics and that's another similarity with all of them is that they all went into politics. Um, what's the difference between a statesman and a politician? Is there a difference? And if there is, what separates the two? Yeah, that's a very important question. I would say um, a statesman is somebody who has a certain gift for practical judgment. The Greeks called it prudence. The Greek word is phronesis. Um, prudence, today we often use the word in a, um, a sense of you know being careful or tepid or restrained. George H.W. Bush was famous after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Iron Curtain. He said, wouldn't be prudent to talk about it too much. They made fun of him on Saturday Night Live. But prudence, you know, for Cicero or Washington or Lincoln was a high political and moral virtue, that capacity to know how to do the right thing in the right way at the right time, right? It's a very rare gift. And these men had it. Secondly, um, I think the Democ the ordinary politician is, and by the way, when I say mediocre, I don't mean that as a condemnation. They're much more concerned with the quotidian, the short run, party politics and all this. And not that these men, uh, Burke uh, was active in his party. Lincoln founded the Republican Party. Churchill belonged, he actually belonged to several different parties. He, he ratted and re-ratted, he said. But that's because the Liberal Party changed. It went from being a classical Liberal Party to a more modern Liberal Party, and it became a conservative. But um, you know, they were concerned with those matters, but they were more concerned, I think, with the big picture. With um, These guys all thought rather deeply about human nature and politics in a way an ordinary politician doesn't. And... Um, uh, you know, they wrote books that are illuminating about, um, uh, you know, what are the obstacles to achieving the common good in a democratic age? The passion of the people, the short-sighted thing. And Churchill has some beautiful passages about how hard it is for democratic peoples to sustain a single course of action when it comes to foreign policy, to hold, you know, hold steady for a considerable period of time. Um, Churchill wrote a beautiful essay called Consistency in Politics. He said, what does it mean to be consistent? It doesn't mean never changing your mind. He said, but it always means being animated by the same purpose, underlying purpose. And he gave us an example. Who's the greatest example of consistency in politics? Edmund Burke. And he said, there's the Burke of Liberty who defended the Americans, the Irish and the Indians and the Burke of authority who opposed the ideological uh, mob in France. But he said, it's all of a piece. It's the same convictions, the same principles at work, a deeper kind of consistency. That's what I would identify with the statesman. But then I would really contrast the statesman with the tyrant because with the tyrant or despot, ambition is disconnected from principle. When I say rapacious, the tyrant will do anything to further his cause, further his ambition. And what I'd say about people like Washington, Lincoln, Churchill, they wanted to be esteemed, but they wanted to be esteemed for the right reasons. You know, in other words, they didn't want some mob cheerleading like the mob at Nuremberg did for Hitler. They wanted 
to remembered for good deeds. They wanted to be remembered for love of country. They wanted to be remembered for honorable ambition. So I'd say central in my book is to sort of reflect in a serious and sustained way on the differences between the statesman, the decent but ordinary politician, and the outright tyrant or despot. Those distinctions are important. And you may remember at the beginning of my book, I make a big deal saying we talk too much about power. We make it out like, you know, if we say Hitler's motivated by power, Churchill's motivated by power. Well, everyone needs power to do their thing. You know, power is an instrument, a means. But I don't think a true statesman can simply be motivated by the accumulation of power. Power is always for something, right? And so when we reduce politics just to the accumulation of power, I think we miss something important. I actually think ordinary people and even political leaders in their inchoate and incomplete ways care about justice. You know, they care about ideas. They're not all cynical. So I think a, sometimes we confuse cynicism with realism. You know, in other words, having a realistic understanding of human nature doesn't mean we should be cynical about the differences between, you know, people who are committed to a free country and people, you know, despots will do whatever they can to promote their dishonorable ambition. If I um, mention a few names, and I'm just, just do a yes or no, and then you can go back and uh, tell me what your thoughts are. But I'm going I'm to list 10 people, at least. I now I I won't attack you. I I, I want to kind of get a gauge of uh, where where this where you look at certain things. Um, actually, I might actually I'm going to add a I'm going to add an eleventh person. So uh, we'll start with uh, Aristotle. Uh, well, Aristotle, yes, in that Aristotle provided a framework for understanding statesmanship. Okay. This framework of the statesman and honorable ambition is right out of Aristotle. So yes. Okay, Demosthenes. You know, uh, one has to admire Demosthenes' warnings against Macedonia and, and, and rhetoric. So, yes, yes. Okay. Charlemagne. Uh, Charlemagne's more complicated. You know, he had a lot of blood on his hands, but I think he, and, uh, maybe so. <laughs> uh, Charlemagne is a Christian king in a difficult age, decentralized power, be, helps build and sustain the uh, the Frankish Empire, but not my beau ideal of a statesman. Okay, uh, Thomas Beckett. You know, I'm so influenced by T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. I, th I, uh, I, have a, I have a positive view of Beckett standing up to the usurpations of the king. All right, uh, Marco Polo. Marco Polo. I don't know a whole lot about Marco Polo other than, you know, the tales of his trips to the East, but I think of him as a, a, a largely positive figure, certainly a memorable figure. Okay. Uh, Patrick Henry. Well, I mean, uh, uh, give me liberty. Uh, you know how, yes, I, Patrick Henry. Uh, I didn't, I don't, I don't know all the details of his subsequent political career, but he as a rhetorician for the revolutionary cause. The answer is yes. Okay, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. I think his defense of America's role in the world was sometimes bombastic, 
but I also think he's hard not to admire. Uh, maybe he took manly virtue a little bit too far, but um, yes, and he was a, uh, he fits my category of the statesman as thinker. He wrote books that are worth reading. Certainly, some fa fa his famous essay, "The Strenuous Life." Uh, I think of him as a conservative reformer. I'm I'm well disposed to him. Okay, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. A mixed bag. I mean. Um, I think the New Deal had aspirations that went too far in the direction of centralization, but I think he played a major role during a national crisis, the Depression, went and, and has to be given some due. I think his, he understood the threat Nazism posed. I think he was weak in his understanding of the Soviet Union. I give him, uh, he's a mixed bag for me. Okay. Uh, I'll have to agree with you wholeheartedly on that one. Uh, John Kennedy? much more of a lightweight than people realize. Um, he was, um, no, you know, the thousand day presidency was extremely short lived. There's not much to judge. Um, a couple of memorable speeches, but um, no, he's not, you know, he always ranks one or two in the, uh, right up uh, the greatest American presidents, but uh, he's overrated. Okay, and the last one would be Martin Luther King. I think Martin Luther King is a mixed bag. I think the Martin Luther King of the letter from Birmingham jail or the great speech on the mall in November 1963, judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. There's much to admire. There's much to admire about the early civil rights movement, but it's also the case he was radicalizing in 67 and 68. Some of the later speeches are rather shocking the praise of the Viet Cong and the denunciation, pretty radical denunciation of capitalism. And I don't know where he would have ended up, but um, I, um, um, there are different Martin Luther Kings, and, uh, but there were aspects of his thought and struggle that I much admire. And there's aspects of where he was heading in 67 and 68 that concern me. And by the way, I would probably be fired from any university if I said that in the classroom. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of unfortunate. Maybe, uh, you know, if JFK were around and you stood your ground, you could be written in his uh, book, Profiles and Courage. So that would throw you in there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for that, you know. I don't think he wrote it. I think... Um, well, one of the family friends wrote it. I mean, he had a hand in it, but it was uh, essentially ghostwritten. But um, really, I, I, I heard that uh, his book about uh, I think it was when England slept. I heard that that one he may not have written that also. But I, he didn't write that at all. That was his senior thesis at Harvard, and that was almost certainly written by somebody else. He was womanizing in those days, not writing about the European crisis. Uh, these have all come out in the biography, so we're not we're not exposing any secrets here. Well, in, in my view, if you say anything that could get you fired, uh, maybe uh, maybe you should be considered a statesman, and and because you certainly have uh, courage. So, just my take. Well, you know, I think with those things, I try to be nuanced and balanced. You know, the word old-fashioned word equity, which is completely misused by the racialist left, the postmodern. Equity just means fairness. And um, 
with these guys, like my answer about King, uh, I'm just trying to be honest. It's a complicated record. And I think, you know, Martin Luther King ought to be approached in the same way we approach any great leader and thinker, you know, with an honest evaluation of their achievements and their weak points. And I think the kind of self-censorship that gets in the way of balanced historical judgments, just not good for the country because it, um, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't allow us to think, you know, to speak publicly about things we ought to care about. So I'm not, uh, I'm not interested in some polemic, but I, I do think if we lose the capacity to speak honestly about the strengths and weaknesses of uh, great public figures, then we're less of a free country than we think we are. Well, you know, I tell people uh, when I criticize some leaders, you know, I loved George Washington, but I'm going to criticize him for many of the battles he fought because he was outwitted by uh, uh, by uh, the general, British General uh, William Howe. You know, Washington managed to get us through the revolution without really winning battles. And uh, uh, but without decisively losing either. But, um, you know, in my book, I, uh, I really defend Washington uh, sort of as a model of Republican greatness, you know, the man who knew how to go home, unlike Napoleon. But I say, you know, with all this effort to cancel the American founders and various American statesmen on the basis of systematic racism, you know, the whole 1619 Friday, so people want to realize that act of Washington in his last will and testament freeing his slaves, providing for their economic provision for 30 years, their education for the next 25 years. That was an act of statesmanship. And uh, he put his money, a lot of the founding fathers criticized slavery. No one really defended it. But Washington knew that his last will and testament would be publicly visible. And that does Jefferson was kind of a limousine liberal, you know, many good things to say about Jefferson, but he was too indebted to free his slaves. I'm sure he wanted to, right? But Washington did it. And um, he did it. And, and that was an act of statesmanship to say to the American people, you know, this is the honorable and just thing to do. So, uh, um, but yes, Washington was not, uh, we honor Washington, I think, more as an honorable political man than as a great general. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, completely. And in, in fact, uh, based on the writings that I have read, uh, I think many of the politicians during that day were thinking that he was uh, that that the term the Fabian. He was doing the Fabian defense, and I know I know Adams was was way too frustrated with him. So, and you know, and the, and the that Conway cabal uh, came about with many of his right hand men, like uh, Joseph Reed, because of. Uh, his inability to win major battles. Well, I think something like the loss of New York was a really, really big deal. And there was deep frustration in the revolutionary leadership, the Continental Congress. And uh, I must say, I'm very moved. I don't talk about the book, but I'm very moved by that speech he gave in New in Newburgh, you know, where the officers hadn't been paid in 1783. Um, there's a little bit of potentially revolutionary ferment in the armed forces and and he gets up in front of those soldiers and he says, you know, and it was all carefully scripted, but he says, you know, he takes off his glasses and says, I too have nearly lost my sight in service of my country. But, and the officers wept, you know, so it's, it's quite a, a quite a dramatic moment. Uh, but I think he was an authentically great man, you know, 
hard for us to understand because he's so austere, you know. We, we want these politicians who, uh, you know, talk to us, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton and all that. And this man who had a bit of the Roman gravitas, you know, and he didn't talk too much about his personal life. And, you know, like people, people approached with a little hesitance and fear and trembling. It's not exactly how democratic politicians work today, but um, it was, uh, yeah, that, there was that, that Roman element, if I can put it that way, to Washington. Well, you know, the, um, other than the fact um, that he followed uh, the footsteps of Cincinnatus by quitting when, when the war was over and qu- quitting after his second term, but uh, there was a story about him that really, ins- I don't want to say it inspired me, but it really made me look upon him as, as a good person was when he uh, intercepted a letter. He, he started reading a letter between um, uh, General Charles Lee and... Um, Joseph Freed, who were supposed to be his, like I said, his right-hand men, and they were conspiring to get rid of him. And he didn't make a big scene about it. He just sealed it back up and handed it to uh, Reed and said, uh, I believe this is for you, and apologized for reading it. Yeah, you know, he, uh, yes, that there was something high-minded about that, and, and but ultimately effective. Uh, yeah, no, no, I think he was an extraordinary man, and... Um, uh, and that kind of sensibility that I would call it self-command, you know, just, you know, an ambition informed by honor, respected by his peers. Um, it's, um, it's something we don't see much of today. And uh, Washington really does. You know, Jefferson Adams have a kind of familiarity of, you know, you, you can, you read the histories, the biographies, you know, they don't seem so distant, but... Washington does really see, uh, seem distant to us. And, um, and I think it's because there's, I'm going to use a word here, austerity. You know, he's austere. He's, um, you know, he's not um, trying to make himself familiar. And that's different. That's something that uh, we don't sufficiently value. So, Dan, my my last question, um, you highlight uh, these individuals. Only one of them is an American, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Um, who? This is sort of a twofold question. Who would you say is the last American statesman? And is there anyone either in America or globally uh, that you see as a potential statesman? Well, um, yes, you're right to note that Lincoln is the only one of the seven uh, kind of major figures. I do, however, talk about Washington on a semi-regular basis throughout the text. I begin the book with a comparison of, uh, of Napoleon. I say his greatness without moderation and greatness without goodness. And Washington, the Cincinnatus who knew how to go home, um, and I'll tell you, any number of the American founders, uh, Adams and, and uh, Hamilton and Jefferson certainly would have been major candidates as statesmen, as thinker. But I just made a practical decision. That territory has been so mined. And the problem, too, it's very difficult to treat any of them individually or singularly because it's sort of this great moment of revolution and constitutional founding. 
So I decided not to have a separate chapter on a single American founder. I do uh, touch on Reagan at the in the appendix and or afterward. I think he certainly was a very honorable statesman. He's left us some writings that are interesting, his diaries, um, some of the radio addresses he gave in the 70s that he wrote himself are very revealing. I don't think he's a thinker of the rank of the American founders or Lincoln or Churchill or de Gaulle. Um, so, but I wanted as a kind of honorable mention to mention Reagan, uh, I was asked about FDR. Many people would probably include FDR because of his role in dealing with the depression and the world war, the second world war. I'm not a great admirer of Frank, Franklin Roosevelt's character. I also um, mentioned his blindness about communism. He certainly wasn't pro-communist, but his aide, uh, Harry Hopkins, who may have been a Soviet agent of influence, uh, famously said that Soviet communism was the New Deal in a hurry. Well, I don't like that. <laughs> and, um, and I think some of his, you know, the court packing, some of his economic programs are problematic. He's just not a thinker. So, but as a, as not as a statesmanist thinker, but as an influential statesman, you could certainly include, once I'm not exactly sympathetic to or wholly sympathetic to Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. Looking down the line, we don't know, you know, de Gaulle had a great line in his memoirs, the future lasts a long time. We've got a lot of problems in the West today, a crisis of self-confidence. I just read a review that uh, Yuval Levin just published in my book where he, he had a beautiful line. He says, we, te we tell young people that our, uh, our country is nothing more than a garbage heap. And then we, want, then we wonder why they don't esteem it, you know? And perhaps, I'm not talking about Trump's model of populism, um, tr Trump was more right than many of his critics, you know, on issues, but, you know, he has a character problem. We need people, someone in the future, not a Caesar saving us, but somebody who can articulate the promise of the American Republic. And I think that will come. Um, but my concern is education. Uh, we don't educate in American political thought to any considerable extent. We don't study the great speeches of the Western tradition. We don't teach rhetoric. We don't teach an account of American history that is sympathetic. You know, a lot of it is self-loathing or, you know, uh, it's not warts and all. It's, you know, the freest and most prosperous country in the world as somehow uniquely guilty or culpable. So it's a little hard in that climate of ne negativity and rejection, you know, to have uh, a patriotic statesmanship to arrive, rise. But it will happen because it has to happen. And now the good news is the Lincolns and Church of the Worlds, they, they can kind of take care of themselves. They arise because they have natural gifts and we still have enough resources in this country and in the Western world, I think, to cultivate human greatness. But if we just go on trying to destroy our own civilizational and civic and heritage, 
heritage or inheritance, it makes statesmanship less likely. And that's a big concern of mine. I'm really worried that, I mean, I like what you guys are doing with Sons of History because you guys have a, you know, an interest in civic life and history uh, the way citizens should have. But believe it or not, you don't get much of that on college campuses. You know, it's all, you know, the number one textbook in grades in high schools now for American history is Howard Zinn, you know, was a Stalinist and hates America, you know, so that, that all makes it harder. That's all I'm going to say. Not impossible, but it makes it harder. Well, that's why instead of uh, self-confidence, I think the West has a problem with self-loathing. I think that's a much, for me, that's a, that's a much bigger problem. And I see it uh, when I have discussions. I, I see it when I read it. I hear it when I have discussions with people. They, they just want to concentrate on self-loathing. Oh, you know, the my ancestors did this, my country did this. And I'll say, you know, that's an indictment on humanity. That's not an indictment on your country. It's not an indictment on Western civilization. By the way, Christopher Columbus, for example, we just had Columbus say, Christopher Columbus did not unfold genocide. He was not a particularly rapacious and exploitative man. Some of the conquistadors were. He tried to keep the peace in the Caribbean. But then the romanticization, the Aztecs had pyramids of sacrifice, sacrifice to the gods, sacrifice to the leaders, killed hundreds of thousands of men. We romanticize what was there. We create a complete caricature of the motives underlying the settlers, et cetera, et cetera. We do not give an accurate or balanced account of our own history. And as Yuval Levin says, then we wonder why these, uh, you know, some of these young people become woke totalitarians because they haven't been taught history. They've been taught, I think you put it well, they've been taught self-loathing. And uh, it's a huge problem. And, um, and um, you know, we don't want, our schools should not be teaching agitprop. They should be teaching real history and an appreciation, a critical appreciation of our civic heritage. And, but... No one, well, where do we think patriotism comes from? You can't tell uh, five-year-olds to 22-year-olds that their country stinks and then expect them in a time of crisis to come to its defense. You know, that's not how human nature works. And, um, and there's much of this country to be proud of. And much of, uh, um, you know, even Martin Luther King in that uh, speech I mentioned, November 8, 1963, he said, you know, the founders really did oppose slavery, uh, as did Lincoln at Gettysburg. He said, they gave us this great promissory note to move forward. That position isn't even taught in schools today. The, you know, the 1619 Project wants to say they were all, you know, evil racists. And, and uh, we, you know, it's um, self-hatred, self-loathing cannot sustain a great and free country. And uh, we're going to learn that. We should be learning that right now. And if we don't learn it quickly, um, the, you know, this great republic is going to, uh, it's going to be facing challenges that, you know, could bring us to our knees. So uh, I agree with you. Self-loathing is the problem, you know, with the emphasis on the, not a, but the problem. Yeah, I hear if you, if you hate yourself, enough and long enough, you'll eventually commit suicide. Um, I don't know how accurate that is, but uh, it could lead uh, the same way with the nation. 
Ladies and gentlemen, his name is Daniel Mahoney. He has written The Statesman as Thinker. Dan, thanks so much, man. This has been an enlightening conversation. Great stuff. Um, and allows people who may have not heard of at least all of these individuals to have an appreciation for statesmanship. And like you said, uh, it eventually will come around uh, through somebody because it has to. And hopefully that that takes place here in the States and hopefully it takes place sooner rather than later. To be able to admire people who deserve to be admired, it elevates your own spirit. It kind of brings out your own desire to, to, to do something with your life and to, uh, uh, you know, I think it's not just an academic exercise. It's something that can energize us in a constructive way. And it's, I think, really important. Well, thanks again for being on the show, man. Um, and uh, thanks for all that you do. You do a ton of stuff, obviously, just, just going over your uh, just going over your bio. But, hey, keep up the great work. Uh, thanks for all you're doing. And uh, thanks again for being on the show. The first and last person who will ask me a question about Breathless Mahoney. <laughs> thanks very much, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thank hey, you. you got it. You. Take care. Well, boys and girls, gals and ghouls, right? Happy Halloween, right? Uh, hope you enjoyed that conversation. Hopefully that is like um, a treat in your bag of goods uh, for this Halloween evening and the, and the week moving forward. Alan, I, I loved the conversation because I think the whole idea of statesmanship going all the way back to Cicero is so important for people who are moving into the realm of politics to understand and try to replicate. Uh, you know, the, he had very interesting things to say. Um, the, the discussions on Churchill and de Gaulle, you know, that was um, a pretty exciting time in human history. You know, uh, you know it was the height of uh, the Second World War, and then it moved into the Cold War with both of them, but mostly during the Second World War, the way those two uh, pretty much carried Western Europe, and um, and and I want to say that that um, you know that he he mentioned about how those two guys also prevented the communists, or really De Gaulle prevented the communists for for taking ownership of the uh, French resistance. So I really hadn't thought of that, but you know, yeah, he was right. There was um, you know Marshal Tito. Of Yugoslavia took over and took ownership of the resistance in Yugoslavia, and he was a communist. And you know, our guys uh, stopped supporting the Chetniks and started really putting all our energy behind uh, the uh, communist partisans. So it's a very good point, and I, I I am very glad that he had said something about that. Yeah, he he brought up a lot of great points um, about all of these statesmen and. I think sometimes, like you said, you can, you can sort of put these people on a pedestal of perfection and whenever you find anything out about them that's not perfect, uh, people try to tear them down. It's like, look, these are just regular people who try to do their best when it comes to what is the most beneficial for humanity or their nation. Um, and I really wish... Because it doesn't seem like that's the case in politics today. It, and it, it, does, it hasn't seemed like that in, in quite some time. It just seems like I'm going to say the same stuff that my party 
my party platform has lined out for me to say. And it's just like, that's why I can't stand like, like people be like, Hey, are you going to go to this? You know, so-and-so's uh, rally. I'm going to like, no, like I can't think of a, like a bigger waste of time than to go see some guy or girl or some woman or man just regurgitate everything that they've already said countless times. And they're not really saying anything. You know, one thing I want to say is, is that, you know, we were, the discussion was, are there any statesmen today? And, and, you know, I, I do, I, I see people like even now, granted, he's not an American, uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Um, just, I think he's a brilliant man, but, and Dr. Thomas Sowell, I think is a brilliant man, but I, but the one thing about people who could be statesmen today is is that they are going to be scared off from wanting to run for politics because yeah everybody has got skeletons in the closet and you know the the media reporters journalists are really really despicable people in my opinion not all of them but quite a huge chunk and you know two people who I would say pay attention to would be Carrie Lake, who's running for governor of Arizona, and um, uh, what, what's that? Oh, God, I forgot her name. I can't believe I forget names. Uh, the, the Hawaiian one who ran for president. Tulsi. Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard, thank you. Where, you know, they, you know, Tulsi Gabbard had a lot to lose because she was, I think, the vice chairman of the Democrat Party. And, you know, she could have... She could have been the vice president. She could be vice president right now if she played ball, but she didn't. She stood on her principles and, you know, she spoke out and, and they're, you know, they're going after her. And, but the, the thing about Carrie Lake that I really like is, is that they're, they're going after her coming up with a bunch of BS stories, but she's attacking, she's counterattacking the media. And I think that when you, when you watch people do that, you know, Don Trump, Donald Trump counterattacked, but he he didn't really do it in a. I would say I'm going to say it. I mean, I look, I'm a Trump fan, but he sometimes counterattacks not in a very dignified manner. But Carrie Lake, I would say, pay attention to her. Pay attention to her. I think she's going to unless unless she screws something up. I think she is going to go places. Yeah, I think uh, look out for her and look out for Fetterman. Um, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> I you know, honestly, you know like, what? Hold on. I, I want to correct something. Fetterman, that's not his name. That's just the doctor who created him. So just <laughs> Frankenstein, <laughs> Frankenstein. <laughs> oh my gosh. I saw that debate and I saw how the, uh, MSNBC and NBC and ABC were, were defending him. I mean, they were defending him. And if anything, they should be attacking the people who put them up there. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just like putting Joe Biden up there. It's like Joe right. Biden is probably 10 years past his prime. Put that, put Biden in during the Obama administration and it's a completely different guy. Right. So yeah, you know, Jill Biden is a despicable woman because she's allowing her husband to make a fool of himself, they know that that his uh, that his mental capacity is is not there anymore. They know that, but yet they throw him up there anyway. So yeah, Jill Biden despicable. His whole cabinet despicable. The media 
who know it, but they won't say anything. All of them are despicable. There you go. That's my word of the day, despicable. It's a, it's a good one. Um, and I, I think a lot of people are going to be probably dressed up this Halloween as uh, characters on Despicable Me, like Minions. So, <laughs> yeah, good good point. All right, man. Well, uh, I think we've gone off a little bit uh, on the the state of politics and statesmanship. Shall we jump into our segment of This Week in History? Yeah, but before we do, okay, you're making fun of my dinosaur book. Have you ever written a book? I have. I have. Uh, it's up there. I got a few copies. Um, All right, so I, I thought I'd kind of plug people in have your read work it. a bit. I, I knew that. You know. Few people have yeah. read it. Um, yeah, I don't know where I don't know where my dinosaur book is. It's gone. But uh, hey, but it was it was a good uh, good bit of scientific research. I might add. I, I can only imagine you're a smart guy. So I can only imagine you're a very smart child. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to do our This Week in History. Saddle up. Get ready. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you want to get up here? Come on. Come on. I'm going to have my uh, Dracula join me. Come on. There we go. Look at that. She looks like Dracula with the, uh, with the vet, like the, the white and the black. It's like the suit. And he always wore a tuxedo. Speaking of, I'm going to be doing, uh, instead of This Week in History, it's sort of This Week in History because it's October 31st, so the origin of Halloween. Um, going to go way back to Samhain, also pronounced as Sawain, is a pagan religious festival originating from an ancient Celtic spiritual tradition. In modern times, uh, Sawain, a Gaelic word, is usually celebrated from October 31st to November 1st to welcome in the harvest and usher in the dark half of the year. Celebrants believe that the barriers between the physical world and the spirit world break down during Samhain or Samhain. It's so weird because it's spelt S-A-M-H-A-I-N. Anyways, so it allows for more interaction between humans and denizens of the other world. <coughs> I have to say, yeah, that's probably the case. Uh, uh, is that, where, is that where the movie uh, Saw came from? Um, no. Anyways, numerous types of monsters and mythical evil creatures like fairies and a now American favorite Dullahan, the Headless Horseman, uh, have come from this. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there were carved turnips called jack-o'-lanterns. Uh, those began to appear during the Middle Ages, and they were attached by strings to sticks and embedded with coal. Uh, later Irish tradition switched to pumpkins. So, to an extent, we're all Irish now. Trick-or-treating is said to have been derived from ancient Irish and Scottish practices in the nights leading up to Samhain. Uh, in Ireland, mumming was the practice of putting on costumes. So, I guess we're all going to be mumming tonight. Uh, going door to door and singing songs to who? To the dead. That's the idea. So you're singing Halloween carols. I don't. I don't know. I don't ever remember any kids coming up to my door singing songs. It's just saying trick or treat. Uh, give me something good to eat. If you don't, I don't care. They used to say I'll pull down my underwear, but then that is probably that would be really 
really, really weird. Um, and that could go down a rabbit hole. Anyways, all right. The Catholic Church tried to Christianize the holiday. So this is where we get All Saints Day to honor dead saints. And also we get All Hallows Eve. Now that name eventually morphed into Halloween. And it became the time when Christians could turn the supernatural symbolism and rituals of Samhain into spooky fun. Um, but much like the mother on, what is it, Waterboy? Still the devil. Ah! Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, bless me. Alan, go ahead. Alan, oh, what yeah. are you doing? Let's go, let's go. All right, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I have a... Celtic. Can you read that? Yep, I guess you could. What's this? Um, I'm going to check something because this is... Uh, I'm going to verify whether you're right or not. Probably I'm not. Well? I got a lot of my information from history.com and that place is a trash joint. History, not from uh, Wikipedia? No, All that's right, your look, source. Oh, look at here. Glossary. All right, glossary. Uh, is that Sam Hain? Is that, is that how you... Sam Hain Sawang. So, okay. Well, you're the one who did the research on that one. And I'm not Irish or Celtic. First of November, beginning of the dark half of the year. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. All right. And let's see. Uh, names. How to pronounce them. Sawan. Sawain. S-O-W apostrophe A-N. It's whatever, man. All right. Anyway, so it's in this book. Folio Society, get it? It's pretty good. All right, but now let's move on. Hey, it's a good job. You got the you got those names right. Hey, thanks, man. You're my uh, personal uh, fact checker. Anytime, anytime. Although I'm, I might slap those uh, things on your uh, wall next time when I, I see something that's incorrect. I'd appreciate it. All right, so we're gonna talk a little history. Mine is, and this is something I'm going to remember because at the time. The, this incident ruined my life. However, you know, they say, you know, turn lemons into margaritas or whatever it is. I, it actually turned out for the good, and here's why. Okay, so November 4, 1979, was when we had the U.S. Embassy in Iran, in Tehran, Iran, was stormed by uh, students um, who supported the Iranian, the fundamentalist Iranian Revolution? So, previously you had the Shah of Iran, and he was overthrown, and the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was in exile in France, he flew in, and there was, you know, Khomeini always considered the United States the great Satan, and there was a lot of animosity, there was a lot of uh, tension between uh, the, you know, the United States and and the new fundamentalist uh, Iranian regime. Well, on uh, on November the 4th, they, you know, actually they stormed the embassy on a couple of other occasions, but on November the 4th, this time they went in there and uh, they took about 90 hostages. This was an act of war, I might add, but they took about 90 hostages and about, about I want to say 66 of them were Americans. And um, it, it, it really paralyzed the United States for the longest time, and uh, huge, huge anti-Iran sentiment was uh, was created here in the United States uh, uh, because of that incident. That's where I kind of come in, but I'll mention that later on. 
Um, now there were there were about thirteen about a couple weeks later there were about thirteen uh, uh, women and um, Black Americans that were released. Uh, another another gentleman uh, who was sick was released shortly afterwards. But for the remaining fifty two hostages, uh, they stayed there in Tehran as hostages for four hundred and forty four days. Um, you know, it 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 really it paralyzed the Jimmy Carter administration. It it ruined his chances for a second term. They did they did try to rescue them, but in the process, uh, a couple of helicopters collided in the de- in the uh, in the desert, Iranian desert, and we had uh, eight Americans uh, that were killed. And uh, yeah, so the the uh, Ayatollah supported it, and we just let them get away with it pretty much they uh there was uh some peace talks in algeria uh christopher warren who would later be the secretary of state in the um in the clinton administration he he worked in the uh carter administration and he helped negotiate kind of like a peace treaty uh between the united states and iran and uh the hostages were released Shortly after Ronald Reagan assumed the uh, or was inaugurated president of the United States, which was on January the twentieth of uh, nineteen eighty one, so yeah, that uh, that all came about on November the fourth of nineteen seventy nine. I, I might add a couple of things. Uh, Nightline on ABC that came about because of the uh, the Iran hostage crisis. Uh, this is where Ted Koppel, who I'd never heard of before, Ted Koppel started Nightline right after your local news um, on uh, the ABC affiliate. And uh, I think I don't know if Nightline is still going on or if they got rid of that, but that w- that's that's how the whole thing got started. As, as for me, you know, we, uh, my family, I don't want to mention the town, but uh, we moved to a new area and we moved there right when it happened. And me being of Arab descent, everyone thought I was Iranian, and boy, that it it was brutal, brutal hell for many years. I would actually hide in the library during PE, and that's that, you know, that's how I ended up starting reading history books. So figured I needed to pass the time. So, but all happened November fourth, nineteen seventy nine. Well, I guess uh, I guess we can. Thank the what is it? You can thank you can thank the fundamentalist Iranians for this for getting me getting me to read and love history so much. Yeah, so thank you, uh, revolutionaries of Iran. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you, Ayatollah Khomeini. Thank you, uh, former President Ahmadinejad. He was one of the guys that uh, that that guy was a psycho, but uh, he was one of the guys that stormed the U.S. embassy. He's a really, really bad president. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, that will be it. Are you dressing up? You said you're dressing up like the Ayatollah for Halloween. Is that correct? No, I I was gonna dress up. Uh, I was gonna dress up with uh, my girlfriend, but that uh, didn't quite work out so well. So, um, so I may be going solo. As I might, eh, well, I'm not gonna go like David DePape, but you know. Um, anyway, so yeah, I I I'm I am gonna go, I am gonna go, uh, uh, I'm gonna go out, but I don't think I'm gonna be dressing up tonight. Well, you and the girlfriend thing—that is news to me. Um, that is this week in history too. So.
All right, well, I don't even want to know the whole girlfriend thing. Um, I just want to move on uh, as, you know, moving on is actually good advice. Uh, but I'm going to just take it for this show, for me personally. Uh, and we're going to move on to our book and movie recommendations. Are you? Do you have your selections ready, sir? Of course I have my selections ready. I've had them... I've already had them ready to go, so. <laughs> All right, let's go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, the book recommendation is Statesman as Thinker. It's a pretty pretty short book, uh, too, but it provides a lot of good insight on what it takes to be a statesman from uh, several examples. Um, it's It's... These are fascinating figures, historical figures. Um, these are not biographies, so don't take them as such. But they do give you a good introduction to these individuals. And then I would encourage you to learn more about each of them because they're really fascinating figures. Uh, speaking of fascinating figures, my movie recommendation um, is a movie called Michael Collins. It is about... One of the leaders of the IRA, this is back early uh, 20th century, um, Michael Collins is played by Liam Neeson. It's actually a very good movie. Um, and a lot, it's like a star-studded cast. Liam Neeson, Julia Roberts, uh, Alan Rickman, God rest his soul, uh, Stephen Ray, Aidan Quinn, and Blendon, Blendon, <laughs> Brendan Gleeson. Um, and I found it sort of funny that this is, this movie is also directed by the same guy who directed the crying game, uh, Neil Jordan. And I remember our conversation that we had about your dad going with you to watch the crying game. No, 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 no. He did not go with me to go see the crying game. He went with me to go see the Norseman, which came out in the seventies, uh, and it had Lee Majors in it, you know, the, uh, $6 million man. And uh, yeah, he he thought that that movie sucked. I didn't care for it that much, and he didn't he didn't want to go see a movie ever again. And then, then some friends of his were like, "Hey, let's go see this game. Let's go watch this movie called The Crying Game." So that was the first movie that he saw after The Norseman in the uh, in the mid to late seventies. And you know, the surprise at the end, he's like, "You know, I waited all these years to go see a movie, and you show me this." <laughs> There you go. Yeah. I yeah. was a little off Sur on the story. I guess but... my dad likes, well, maybe he doesn't like surprises, but. Yeah. No. God rest his soul, so. Indeed. Well, okay, so mine is going to be the same book as yours, The um, the Statesman as Thinker. I think uh, I think we need, so it's, first of all, it's a very, very well-written book, and I think, you know, we need more statesmen in this world. Uh, um Although, you know, I should have asked him the difference between a statesman and an ideologue, but uh, maybe I ideologues are not very, very good. You know, you remember, uh, remember Donald Critchlow and his book about revolutionary monsters? Yeah, that's, uh, I have that book somewhere. In fact, I was just thumbing through it. Anyway, okay, so, um, so yes, so The uh, Statesman is Thinker is going to be the book that I would will also recommend people read now in terms of movies i think let's have a little fun it's halloween the original halloween the one that came out when was it 1978 it's a good movie um donald pleasance 
and uh, Jamie and a young Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, I, I really like it. I think it's the best uh, best of the Halloween movies. Although, um, what is it? The town is it? Is it in Illinois, Haddonfield, or Haddonville, or Haddon something or other? Well, you know, in October it's cold in Illinois. You don't see palm trees, so I knew. All right, I don't think this movie is filmed in uh, Illinois. So I looked it up, and sure enough, uh, filmed it in L.A. So, yeah. So that house was that was all filmed in California, but yet the setting was in Illinois, which just didn't seem right because it's not exactly green with palm trees in October in Illinois. So you've there's a new Halloween movie that just came out, and it's supposed to be as many of the previous ones were uh i guess noted to be or whatever to be the last one do you think this is actually going to be the last one or do you think it's going to take the actual death of jamie lee curtis for that franchise to come to an end you know if if it makes money they're going to continue but i think what will happen is that if jamie lee curtis dies or something happens to her they are going to do a new type of reboot of Halloween where the uh, Michael Myers will still be a white guy, but they will probably bring in a person of, uh, of color or something or trans, <laughs> trans something or other. Um, I, think, I think Mike Myers will be a Christian, a Christian man and a Republican wearing a MAGA hat. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how uh I think I, we can expect uh we can expect that. Maybe they can bring in um uh, was it that Smollett guy? <laughs> Juicy Jesse Juicy whatever. He can be uh he can be the new um uh Jamie Lee Curtis. And there you go. Being chased by uh <laughs> It all it all happens at 2 a.m. at a subway. Yes. What well, when it's uh, minus 40 degrees outside. Hilarious. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, I, I think that would I think that's gonna be a, a big hit. Um, I think it'll probably do as well as your uh I think you said you went and saw this twice. You went and saw bros twice, isn't that right? Uh, did I go see what? Bros. Bros? Yeah. That what new is the this? new gay rom com. I don't know. <laughs> No, what is that? I don't even know what the hell that is. Well, just let it let you know. It it bombed. It bombed. Bros. Oh wait, 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 wait. Is that that movie? Is that that movie where the director got pissed off because nobody went to go see it? Well, yeah, yeah. Maybe because it sucked. I heard it really. S- s- what? Oh wait, you know, wait. Bad wording. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to be that person so now i heard it uh it really is not a very good story how's that yeah i heard the storyline was terrible and uh and i i'm i'm done i'm done all right uh everything is everything is going downhill now so we're gonna end it now ladies and gentlemen uh thanks for joining us we'll see you next week